using a wireless microphone, and it is very loud. <laughs> Fancy people use wireless microphones. So, good morning. How's everybody doing today? Good. It's good to see you. Um, I think it's interesting that uh, I think Chrissy and Kathy in their prophetic words during worship really hit on uh, a large portion of what I want to talk about today. This idea that we were created in God's image and this idea that we were created for something more than we are experiencing right here and right now in this fallen age. We see sin and death and corruption all around us. And what I want to talk about today is what I've titled the message is the Father of Fellowship and this idea that God has created us to live in fellowship with Him, in fellowship with each other, and with fe- in fellowship with all of creation. And I believe that even though we were created to live in relationship with, in all three of those areas, many of us try to find fulfillment and we try to find completion from uh, individualism and consumerism. And I'm just going to give you my definitions for individualism and consumerism because I'm going to talk about them a few different times during the, the message, and I think that we might have some different ideas of what the definition is. So, my definition of individualism comes from this scientist by the name of Geert Hofstede, and he said that individualism pertains to societies in which the tie between individuals are loose, and everyone is expected to look after him or herself and his or her immediate family. And I don't think it was difficult for us to kind of look at our culture and see that America is steeped in individualism, that we are often looking out for ourselves and those closest to us and not as much concerned about people outside of that circle. And then consumerism, a guy by the name of Roger Swagler, said that consumerism is the selfish and frivolous collecting of products or economic materialism. And we again, can see this all around us in our culture. And people uh, are looking for happiness, and we even see that it's written into our founding documents. It is, it's one of our inalienable rights that we, are a, that we should be able to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We should be able to pursue happiness because we're Americans, and that's who we are. And we should be able to do what we want, when we want to do it, if it makes us happy, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. That is kind of our cap, right? But sometimes, even if it hurts somebody a little bit, it's probably okay. And we are told that our ultimate purpose is about achieving happiness. But our culture has stripped out how happiness is actually found. And I believe that culture has even redefined what happiness is. You know, we're told that our ultimate purpose is about achieving happiness. In our, we're told that our happiness looks like a beer commercial. You know, it looks like we are beautiful people and we're surrounded by beautiful people and we are right on the cusp of doing something incredibly exciting. And we always have the right thing to say and everything is together. You know, we're also told that happiness is found in a new car or a nicer home or a new TV. And I know that myself, you know, I have this archaic iPhone 4. And it was like two days after I got my iPhone 4 that I heard about the iPhone 5 and the 5S. And now my sad little device that lets me talk to anybody in the world and get 
draw up any piece of information that I ever want. And sometimes it takes a, a website nearly five or seven seconds to load is this archaic brick that I have to suffer through. And if I could just get that iPhone 5, heck, if I could just get the 5S, then I think I would be happy. My life would finally be complete, right? And this happened when I was, when I was on the worship team, when I was, uh, you know, I would get some new gadget, I'd be like, well, once I get the blues driver pedal, then I'm going to be good to go. Or, you know what, if I get, you know, I have this amp, but really what I actually need is this other amp. And, and there's never uh, a satisfaction, right? We're never completely satisfied with whatever our new toy is. And so we come to believe because of social media and commercials, television shows, movies and music, that everyone else, everyone else around us is living the high life. Everyone else around us is happy. Everyone else has it together. You know, we don't see anybody post a picture on Facebook with them just kind of looking down and saying, on my way to marriage counseling. You know, that just doesn't happen. And nobody posts a picture of them sitting, drinking a beer, watching a, another rerun of Saved by the Bell, thinking, where's my life gone? You know, that just doesn't happen. You know, everything that we see on Facebook is some beautiful couple out on their glorious date night, right? And they are beautiful and they're happy and things are going well. And, you're, and I'm just like, I don't even want to look at my wife right now. What's going on? What's wrong with me? Amber's not here yet. I'm going to change that, <laughs> that illustration for second service. So, but we, but we all see that we, when we look at social media, when we look at TV, when we look at all that the culture is trying to sell us, we feel like we are somehow missing out and we have not found fulfillment. And so we must have to pursue what the culture is selling us. And of course we see people that are close to us that post some cryptic, painful message and we're just, we can easily rationalize that they are crazy and they don't have it together. But the, our, mo, our majority focus is on the mountaintops of people's existence that we see on, on Facebook and we feel like we are missing it. And we see everybody else's mountaintops, but we only focus on our own valleys. And we know that we're supposed to be happy and we have believed that happiness is about meeting our needs and our desires and our own passions whenever we want. And we think that we're just missing a little bit of stuff. And we believe that there is only so much happiness available. And so if a friend or a coworker, or a neighbor gets a promotion or a raise or a new car, we feel like not only have they gotten something, but somehow through that promotion they have stolen something from us. And we are dissatisfied when we see other people successful and happy. And so we try to achieve success at whatever the cost. And yet we never actually find it. And it's this vicious cycle. And we retreat into individualism. And we retreat into consumerism to try to fill the void that is in our heart. But this month, I guess I didn't mention this, this month we're talking about who is the Father. You know, and we are... So what I want to say is that our Father... You know, even though we see this individualism and this consumerism running rampant in our culture, and we see it running rampant in our churches, and we see it in our own lives, we can tell that the Father, our loving Father, has a different idea 
about how we should do life well. And I think that God wants us to live full and abundant lives. He wants us to enjoy life. And I think that it is possible when our focus is on His plan for success and what His plan for happiness is and not exactly what the world is trying to sell us. And so this morning, what we want to look at is pre-fall creation and try to get an idea of what were God's intentions for mankind when he created us. You know, he, we, I believe that he wants us to live full lives, and he created us to do that. But what is it that we're missing now that was destroyed when sin entered into humanity? And so we're going to look uh, at a couple of passages in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Um, so if you want to open up your Bibles to Genesis uh, chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 26 to 28. And that says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And now let's jump to Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 4. It says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then lastly, let's just jump to chapter 2, verse 18. And it says, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made the woman from the ribs he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And I think that what we're going to look at is that in these pre-fall chapters of the Bible, we can see that God had a purpose and God had an intention for his creation of mankind. And we see that in Genesis 1.26, God is creating the world in community. It says, just as Chrissy pointed out earlier, said that then God said, let us make mankind in our likeness. 
And so our understanding is that this is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit who are working together, who are living in community. And they said, let's make mankind like us. Let us make them in community. So I believe that that's one aspect of our likeness to God, is that we were created for community. There's a theologian by the name of Michael Horton from California, and he said this. This is kind of a a lengthy quote, so bear with me. Uh, He said, Michael Horton said, to be created in God's image is to be called persons in communion. There was no moment when a human being was actually a solitary, autonomous, unrelated entity. Self-consciousness always included consciousness of one's relation to God, to each other, and to one's place in the wider created environment. And so, because we are descended from Adam, because we come from Adam, just like he was created, not as some solitary individual kind of out in the universe trying to pull things together himself, but he was created inside community. He was created for communion with God. He was created for communion with creation. And he was created for communion with other mankind. I'm slightly getting ahead of myself. You see that fellowship with God wasn't enough because God created Adam and he was in perfect relationship with the Father. He was in perfect relationship with creation. We see um, that... uh, Excuse me, I got a little distracted. In Genesis 2.8 it says, The Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All right? And so God creates man, creates Adam, and places him in this garden. And we see that there are trees that are pleasing to the eye and trees that are good for food. And so as I was thinking about this, you know, this idea that God could have created trees that were pleasing to the eye just for himself. But God doesn't eat food. And so it doesn't seem like there would be any point for him creating, you know, the, the food from the trees was good to eat. I think that what we're supposed to understand here in Genesis 2 is that God created the garden for man to enjoy. It wasn't just this uh, idea that, you know, I just need a robot that can take care of my beautiful garden. And I think that's why he also put in the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because he wanted man to make a choice. He wanted man to live in relationship with God the Father, not in just obedience. If he hadn't put the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in there, Adam would have had no options to sin, right? He would have just obeyed God like a robot, like some automaton that took care of the garden and cultivated things and did what he was supposed to do. But that wasn't God's purpose. God's purpose was that I want to make a man. I want to create a person who I can have relationship with and who can have relationship with me. And that relationship demands that there is choice. I want the man to choose me. And so we see man in this garden, this perfect sin-free garden, you know, working the land, it's, everything's great, and he's in this perfect relationship with God, right? There's nothing in the way, there's no sin confusing him. And yet, God says 
in Genesis 2.15 that the Lord God took the man... Nope. In 2.18 it says, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a, su- a helper suitable for him. And I just think that that is really interesting. And it, it, I feel like I, I'm only scratching the surface of this idea that God's purpose in creation wasn't enough when Adam was in perfect relationship with the Father. Like that, like I don't, that doesn't, it hardly even makes sense. You know, in our churches, you know, we talk so much about the importance of me having a relationship with the Father. And that is really good. It is really good. But God says right here at the beginning, before there's any sin, that that is not enough. There's a bigger picture, there's a bigger story going on than we sometimes focus on. And it's this idea that God's purpose in creation could not be met without relationship with other people. It's what God created us for. And it's only in that relationship, in having all three of these relationships with God, with mankind, and creation, that we will really be able to enter into the fulfillment and the happiness and the joy that God created us for. And so, so all our scrambling for you know, to, to serve ourselves and all our trying to get some new product that will allow us to be happy, to rise above and to find fulfillment are never going to work because we were created for relationship. We were created for fellowship with God, with, with mankind, and with creation. And removing any one of them is not good. And we, as Christ followers, we can enter into this perfect relationship right now. We don't have to wait for eternity to get there. And I think that there's this idea that I have maybe subconsciously kind of bought into for a long, long time. And I feel like just in the last six months or more that I've been really challenged to to see eternity in a, in a different way than I've understood it before. I've so often looked at this, this side of eternity, this age, this part of life where we are all today, as we're just struggling to get through, and someday we will die and we will go to heaven and we will be with Jesus. And then everything is going to be perfect. It's like I have kind of decided that you know, this life, you know, there's definitely some, some good stuff going on here, but what we're really striving for is to get out of this earth and get to heaven. And I think that... How do I put this? I think that when we think about eternity, when what we understand of eternity might be um, somewhat lacking. And... I think that there's this idea that when, when, we, when Jesus comes back, when the second coming comes, that the, the creation is going to be renewed. The, the heavenly Jerusalem is going to come and is going to be on earth. And you and I, after we die, are not going to go and fly up and live on some cloud somewhere. We are going to live here on a new earth. We're going to live here on earth you know, except without sin, without the corruption that we're surrounded by. 
And when I was at a conference at Calvin um, in December, somebody asked a question. He said, what would the world look like if sin had never entered into the picture, if man had never fallen? And I never had ever considered that question before. Like, I, I well, I was, and I, so I was trying to get my mind around it, and the guy quickly answered. He said, I believe that the earth would, we would have seen people build cities, and people invent cars, and people would get married, and people would have relationships, and there would be uh, gatherings of people, and, and like, it would be like this. It would be our world, except without the corruption of sin and death and pain. And so I think that there's this idea that we aren't just trying to scramble through this existence and just get through so that we can get to heaven. I think that there is part of this existence, even though tainted by sin and messed up, and I understand that there's pain and there's sickness and disease and there's bad stuff happening, but there's part of this, that this is God's purpose for us. This is where God created us. This is where God wants us to live. And not just so that we can have individual um, relationships with him, though obviously that's incredibly important. And we all need to make an individual uh, choice to follow Jesus. But that we have been called and we have been placed in community. And it's only as we live together in community and as we enjoy this life in the midst of the pain and in the midst of, of the, the, the sin corruption. Like this is where we can, we can find the fullness of life right now. We don't have to wait for eternity. We don't have to wait for Jesus' second coming. And so the idea, there's this, this kingdom theology that I'm just kind of learning about recently, this idea that the kingdom is now and not yet. So this idea that Jesus came and inaugurated the kingdom. So Jesus comes and, and all right, now the Messiah is here and now we're going to move from this old evil age and we're going to move into the new age where Jesus is king and we can rule and we can reign with him. And yet we find that Jesus has come, he died and he rose again and he's inaugurated this new age, right? This idea that Jesus is now the ruler, right? except we're still in the midst of this evil age where it's obvious that that Satan and other principalities and powers still are in charge. Like we are, somehow we are in this new age because we we have believed in Jesus and we have put off our old sinful self and we have been made new. We are new creations. And that doesn't mean just us ourselves, though that is true. I am a new creation. But it means that I can now partake in the new creation. I am now part of an age that is and is yet to come. And so when I pray uh, the Lord's Prayer, when I say, Lord, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, I am an ambassador of that kingdom. I am living that kingdom life in all of its ethics, in all of its morality, in all of its power is living in me in a not yet age. So the kingdom is now here in us, in this community, in our relationships. This is the new kingdom. And yet we are living in a not yet age. And like that 
seems a little bit confusing and it's a little bit difficult for me to get my mind around. And like I said, I feel like I'm just kind of scratching the surface of this and that there's this idea that we are new creations and we are knit together, that we are the bride of Christ and it is in community that we find fulfillment. It is in community with each other and in community as a body with the Father that is where we find happiness. That is where we find joy. That is where we find the peace in the midst of this evil age. And I actually have a quote, and I, don't, I think that this kind of helps clear up this idea, this kingdom theology, from a book called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. And it says that the early Christians came to realize that Jesus had not come to usher in the final end, but the beginning of the end, as it were. Thus they came to see that with Jesus' death and resurrection and with the coming of the Spirit, the blessings and benefits of the future had already come. In a sense, the end had already come, but in another sense, the end had not fully come. Thus it was already, but not yet. And so you and I are living in the kingdom now. When we believe in Jesus, we are filled with the Spirit and we are transported into this new age. And so we can be the salt and we can be the light, you know, bringing that salt and light into this not yet age. And so we as Christians can shine the light of the gospel. And I think that even as we just spend time together, as we have relationships together, as we love each other, as we serve each other, as we take care of this gathering of Christ followers, that even in that, that spreads the light of the gospel. Because we're living in this countercultural community that fights against the individualism and the consumerism that runs so rampant everywhere else. And as we serve each other, as we love each other, we are going against these ideas of our culture that say you have to look out for number one. You know, we're living a completely different aspect, right? We are living that, you know what, my life is to, I'm, I'm going to lay down my life for others. It's the complete opposite of looking out for number one. And it's in that that we fight against individualism. And I think that it has just permeated, just permeated our culture and our churches, this idea that it's all about me and that we have to look out for ourselves. And also we see that the explosion of consumerism really is there to kind of satiate that individualistic idea. That if I get enough stuff, if I get stuff that I want, that that I will be happy, that I will be fulfilled. And there's a book called Stormfront by Brownson and a couple other authors. And they talk about this. Here's a quote from that book. It says, Most of us no longer consume to live. We live to consume. Our lives are orchestrated around habits of consumption that no longer serve any higher purpose, but which have become an end in themselves, to be desired for their own sake. These habits in turn transform our relationships with other people as friendships and even marriages are entertained around the question of meeting our personal needs. And we see this all around us. We I've certainly seen this in my life that even my relationships are for my own benefit and for my own needs. 
And sometimes we transform you know, our spouse into not somebody that we can serve as the Bible and the, the ethic of Christianity calls us to as something, somebody to serve and to love and to pour out to. But we see them as somebody who's supposed to meet our needs. And when they stop you know, meeting our needs in whatever way, we turn away from that and go, well, I know that life is about my happiness. And this isn't making me happy right now. I'm going to go do something else. I'm going to go buy a new car. I'm going to go look at some pornography. I'm going to go do whatever it is that this culture is selling us that we think will give us happiness. But really, the ethic of Christianity says to find fullness, to find uh, abundant life, we need to serve, we need to love, and we need to have relationships. And we see throughout the New Testament this that if you kind of look up the to one another. We're supposed to love one another and we're supposed to forgive one another and we're supposed to submit to one another. And there's all these things throughout the New Testament that tell us how to live in community. Because I think that what we were created for, what our purpose is and where we're going to find fulfillment is living in community. And individualism, consumerism, were never part of God's plan. Adam wasn't created just to satisfy his own desires. He was created to be in relationship, to be submitted to God, submitted to mankind, and submitted to creation. And because God's Spirit lives in us, because we have been restored in our relationships with God, with each other, and with creation, we can war against the spirits of individualism and consumerism, even in this not-yet age. We can choose to live out of God's sufficiency. We can trust Him to take care of us as we live in fellowship with Him and as we live in fellowship with each other and when we live in fellowship with creation. And as I've said, you know, God desires to, for us to live in fellowship with Him and we see this throughout the Old Testament. Um, oh, in conclusion... <laughs> um, <laughs> All right, I was, I was going to talk about some of the sacrifices in Leviticus. I'm just going to, luckily for you, I'm going to shorten that bit. Um, and so one of the offerings in Leviticus is the, the fellowship offering or the peace offering that we see in Leviticus 3 and 7. And it was designed to help a believer maintain his fellowship with God. And so the fellowship offering was different than the sin offering or the atonement offering that actually dealt with the sin. This offering was... A, a celebration of God's forgiveness. It was a celebration of what God had done or what he was going to do. And it was a celebration of the restoration of a right and meaningful relationship with God and with life itself. And so through this sacrifice, the Father put into the law a way for the Israelites to have intimacy with him and with others. This was not just, you know... Intimacy is incredibly important to, to God. And he's not just waiting for his people to, to get it together so he can have relationship. No, even in the law, he created this way for his people to draw together with other people and to draw close to him. You see, the sacrifice was actually, it was a dinner. And as the Israelites would bring their sacrifice to the priests who represented God, they would take it and sacrifice it and splatter some blood somewhere. And they would cook this, this offering, 
uh, goat or a sheep or a cow or whatever, and they would cook it and eat it together. And God, through this sacrificed animal, provides fellowship with himself and with others. You see, the priest represented God, and so the priest would sacrifice it, and he would cook it, and they would eat it together, the priest and the worshiper and the other people participating in this worship. All right? And so there, I just think that it's significant that we see that God created a way to live in intimacy with his people. And so, and as we take a look at the big grand scheme of the Old Testament, we don't see this big, scary, aloof God waiting for his people to get their acts together. He is looking for ways to draw close to them. He is looking for ways for them to draw close to each other. He is looking for ways to build relationship and intimacy with his people. And just as God created a way for the Israelites to have intimacy with others, and with God, you know, God has done the same thing for you and I. And Jesus Christ has fulfilled this fellowship offering as well as all the offerings and the sacrifices and the priesthood in the Old Testament. And so just as the Israelites partook of this sacrifice with God and with each other, you and I, even today, as we partook of the Lord's Supper, you know, we are entering into the fulfillment of this. God, there's, it's no longer a sacrifice of a, of a cow or a sheep. It is Jesus' sacrifice. And it is through communion and partaking of the body and the blood of Jesus that we are brought deeper into relationship with God. And we're brought deeper into relationship with each other. I think it's important, and there's a reason why we do communion as a body. We do it together because we are in this together. We are living as Christ followers together. And we're not just some gathering of people that just happen to show up in, in one building this morning. We are a family. And we are a community. And New Day does this exceptionally, exceptionally well. You know, the number of people that serve here and uh, have relationship here, you know, it's amazing. We have a great church. But even in myself, I have seen this tendency to retreat. This tendency to be, I, I want to be fulfilled. Why do I feel sad? Why am I depressed? And I'm going to retreat from what is actually going to answer and meet those needs. Whether that's relationship with the Father, which is incredibly, incredibly important, and He created you to have relationship with Him. Or whether that is relationship with each other. That is... He created us to have relationship with each other, to love each other, and to serve each other. And so the takeaway, today's takeaway, this, if you don't remember anything else, remember that God created us to live in relationship, in perfect relationship with Him, with man, and with creation. But sin messed all that stuff up, all of those relationships. But Jesus' sacrifice has restored us in every way. And we are living in the kingdom of God now. And we can live in the sufficiency of the kingdom right now, even in this not yet world. And our Father, who loves us, did not let anything get in the way of restoring that relationship. And we will find peace and joy and fulfillment only if we submit to God and live in right relationship with Him and we live in right relationship with others. Thank you. Amen. Thank you.